Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 70 of X Lapsed. Can you believe it? 70 whole episodes here, which is, uh, I didn't think we'd get to seven, much less 70, but, uh, here we are. <laughs> and, uh, now before we, uh, get into the, today's book, a little bit of housekeeping. Now, uh, for those of you listening to this in real time, like, you know, today it comes out, you were supposed to get this episode a couple days ago. But the uh, day job kind of uh, precluded me from doing so. It uh, kind of got the best of me <laughs> that day. I actually had this entire episode scripted and ready to go. But when the day was done, you know, chewing me up and spitting me out, I really didn't think I had it in me to vocally, you know, perform for a better part of an hour, you know, and perform with quotes around it, of course. So in its place, I released an all-new segment of From Claremont to Claremont, Episode 3, where my buddy Jody and I discussed X-Men Volume 2, Number 3, from 1991. And I hope those of you who listened to that enjoyed it and weren't too put off that it wasn't another episode of X-Lapsed. Um, and, uh, you know, it looks like uh, at this point I'm going to try and keep releasing the uh, From Claremont to Claremont segments as, uh, well, segments. Um, a lot of folks have been telling me or been urging me to uh, to do so because one giant 12 to 14 hour program might be a big ask, right? Even if it's only once a month or once or twice a year, <laughs> as the case may be. Um, and when I started from Claremont to Claremont, I had uh, um, delusions of grandeur. I envisioned it to as kind of being its own thing, you know, kind of separate from everything else I did, uh, podcasting and blogging alike. Uh, I even bought a domain for it. It's a 90sxmen.com, which I was shocked was still available. Um, but I guess at this point, it looks like uh, old FCTC will now be part of the uh, X-Lapsed family of shows, if I can call it that. And hopefully I'll be able to share segments on a weekly or near-weekly basis with uh, with the compilation episode of, you know, 12 to 14 to 16 hours. Maybe we'll compile them once all said and done, right? Uh, when a month's worth of books is in the books so to speak. But, uh, you know, I had really, really big plans for From Claremont to Claremont and some pie-in-the-sky expectations that, uh, well, they didn't really pan out. <laughs> it, uh, in my opinion, it kind of under-delivered on uh, what I was hoping for, especially when I weighed it against how many, you know, man-hours I was putting into it. And uh, But that's neither here nor there. We'll just, uh, we'll play it by ear and we'll just put those out as they need be. And hopefully folks will enjoy them and uh, be able to get a, uh, I don't know, wider breadth of, uh, of X-Men coverage here at the channel. Um, hey, you know, maybe, I, you know, I, I already have 90sxmen.com as a domain. Maybe I'll just have that redirect to x site. 
I don't know. I mean, it's certainly an easier web address to share and to remember than xlapsed.chrisisoninfoadress.com. So we'll see. We'll see. Now, if anybody has any thoughts or suggestions or even feedback on uh, From Claremont to Claremont, please, I urge you to feel free to share them right here. I mean, there are no rules. There's no, uh, no expectation. So any suggestions are definitely most welcome. But with that out of the way, let's get in today's book. It's a, it's a giant-sized book, which I don't think we'll have giant-sized things to say about. Um, this is giant size X-Men colon Nightcrawler number one. Set a May 2020 cover date. Story's called Haunted Mansion. Story and words, Jonathan Hickman. Story and art, Alan Davis. Colors, Carlos Lopez. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa White Sapolsky. Cover price, 499 pennies. Went on sale March 25th of 2020. Now, we open in Westchester, back at the old mansion, which I got a figure outside of Major X. This is probably the first time we've seen this place in, in quite a while, right? I'm confused as to whether or not the prior run of Uncanny X-Men took place at the mansion, or were they still operating at a Central Park? I, I don't remember. I know they picked Kitty up from Central Park, and I remember a whole big to-do in X-Men Prime, I think they called it, before the blue and gold stuff happened, where they kind of established themselves in Central Park. I don't know, maybe one of the teams was in Central Park, the other one was in the mansion. I don't know, I guess I'd have to read it. <laughs> so, either way, it's weird to see the old place again. And it's actually, it's kind of sad to see the old place again. It's all overgrown and, uh, well, vacant for the most part. Anyway, there's a Krakoan gateway here. Of course there is. And from it step our cast. Magic, Eyeboy, Cypher, Nightcrawler, and Lockheed. Yeah, Lockheed's back and nobody bothered to tell us, huh? I mean, at this point, and going by Marvel's own reading order that they include in the back of all the books... We're going to be looking at the next issue of Marauders in episode 74. So that's four episodes from now, which I gotta assume that's maybe when we'll see Lockheed's grand return. So, uh, I don't know. It's I mean, it's not like there's a half dozen editors juggling this line of books, right? We can't keep things in order. Anywho, they're here to look for some sort of potential problem with this particular gateway. It seems that mutants, for whatever reason, are having some difficulty accessing it. So there's a lot of, like, warp fails here. From here, a double-page spread of credits not immediately followed by a roll call, because that's going to come later. For reasons, I guess. So, back to comics, our team is inside. iBoy takes one look around. I mean, he, he's always taking a look. That's kind of his thing. He suggests uh, they hightail it out of there, because this place looks really creepy. Ilyana tells them to show respect to their former home. Nightcrawler agrees, but also can't shake the feeling that something is very wrong here. Just then, Lockheed goes all bird dog-like and lunges into some of the overgrown vegetation. And looking at this vegetation here, it's like, are we in, like, The Last of Us? Have the X-Men been away from the mansion for, like, 40 or 50 years at this point? There's a lot of green growth here, which, I mean, I guess we can blame it on Krakoa. We can lampshade it that way. So... Lockheed rushes in like a literal ball of fire before Nightcrawler can nab him and try to calm the tiny dragon down. As he does, however, Nightcrawler sees Thunderbird, the original Thunderbird from Giant Size. Magic and the rest rush over, however, by the time they arrive, old T-Bird is gone. Eyeboy suggests that the smoke from Lockheed's flames were just playing tricks on Kurt's vision, which I guess stands to reason, right? 
Just then, Kurt sees out of the corner of his eye another familiar shape. And if you've already, you know, looked at the cover of this issue, you'll know exactly who this is supposed to be. He clearly thinks this is Hound-era Rachel, and so he bamfs all over the place trying to catch her. The rest of the team isn't so sure, however, Eyeboy is. He mentions seeing someone decked out in red leather and spikes. Then, hey, it's Rachel. She presents herself to the team. Once they all lay eyes on her, she books it, running deeper into the mansion until they arrive at a weird alien-like biological tunnel. It, it kind of looks like intestines, kind of. Now, Kurt manages to catch her, where, and he attempts to ask, you know, what in the hell's going on here? Rachel can only respond in a weird, nonsensical language. Doug suggests that it's some kind of a standard harmonic binary, which, okay. He doesn't bother to translate it for us, however. That is, if, you know, if there's anything even here to translate, I suppose. Doug then places his hand on the weird intestine-like wall and notes that there's a slight pulsing. And a second later, he sucked right into it. Whoops. This distraction proves just enough for Rachel to escape Nightcrawler's grasp and run even further down this nasty, disgusting pipe. Elsewhere, Doug is spat out of the you know gross, fleshy mass, plopped out in what I think might be the old Cerebro room. You know, that odd room with the bridge in it. Uh, there, at the end of the bridge, if this is even a bridge, uh, we see a glowing pink orb. Now, Doug goes to touch it with his warlocky hand, which does appear to react to it. When suddenly, a beetle skitters into the room? We'll deal with that later. First, let's go back to the team. Nightcrawler, who I want to remind us all, is allegedly the star of this issue. <clears throat> Nightcrawler and company once again catch up to Rachel. Eyeboy makes some eye puns, which only makes me hate him more. I didn't think that was possible. Then, Rachel finally speaks, like a language we can understand. She tells Nightcrawler that she's trapped and sleepwalking. We then get a peek into her mind, though I don't think all Kurt is seeing anything that we're seeing. He, he's not a telepath. She talks of travel and migration. We see planets, a horde of weird alien beetles, and Cyclops, Storm, and Corsair fighting them off. I guess we just can't help ourselves with the space stuff here, huh? She then cries out for help before transforming into like a weird rat king of beetles. Like she just becomes beetles and falls apart. Then our team finds themselves surrounded by, like, thousands of these nasty little things. Kurt somehow immediately knows that these little things are bounty hunters. I don't know how he came to that conclusion, but uh, we'll let him <laughs> we'll let him have it. We jump back to Doug, and he's chatting up the orb. It looks like it and the beetles are simply protecting their turf in this situation. Doug again engages his warlocky hand, which we'll be getting back to really soon. But first, the rest of the team continues fighting the Beatles. And before we move on, it's funny, because every time I type the word Beatles into my document, you know, B-E-E-T-L-E-S, it tries to correct it to uh, the band name. So I guess people don't talk about Beatles in the plural very often on Google Docs. Anyway, back to the comic. Here, Magic, as Krakoan captain, pulls rank to tell Nightcrawler that there's, there's really no win in sight here. They just gotta grab Doug and get the hell out. So I guess Captain ranks higher than Councilman. I, I mean, maybe it's context-sensitive. I don't know. With that, Ilyana warps away to fetch Doug, while Kurt, Eyeboy, and Lockheed try to hold their position against this horde of alien insects. So we follow Magic to the Cerebro Room. Again, if, in fact, this is the old Cerebro Room. 
There she finds Doug and Warlock chatting up the bugs. Now she's pretty shocked to see old Warlock here and uh, asks how long Doug's been hiding him. I mean, we, we readers can't be the only ones who have noticed that Doug's right arm looks like a friggin' phalanx, right? I mean, this has to have come up in conversation a time or two before, right? Whatever the case, Warlock says that his presence here's gotta remain a secret, and Ilyana agrees. So, Doug reveals that these little beasties are the Sidri, and they've decided to take up a nest at Xavier's and are only acting aggressive because they're, you know, protecting themselves. It looks like there's going to be a peaceable end to this encounter, as elsewhere, all the beetles stand down. And so the team is reunited, and they're led to a glowing gold ball. Well, not an actual gold ball, but an egg-like thing, nonetheless. Doug informs the team that the Sidri have asked for a favor in solving their current infestation. And that infestation is a mutant. So this egg kind of dissolves, and inside it we see it's Lady Mastermind who I could have sworn we already saw arriving on Krakoa back in that big ol' shoe drop issue, House of X number 5. Maybe she did, and she left and then wanted to come back. Maybe she was just passing through Xavier's. Maybe we're not supposed to think about any of this. I don't know. Anywho, Lady Mastermind is the reason why we saw a Thunderbird and a Hound-era Rachel, which I guess is as good a reason as any. She was Her mind was wandering. She was sleepwalking. Remember, she was trapped. Now, Doug tells the team that the Sidri are cool with them now and will no longer block the gateway, so long as nobody screws with their nest. Then, a whole bunch of Sidri merge into another rat king of beetles, which kind of looks like the old sentient danger, you know, danger room, whatever the hell she was, to say a few final things to Doug. And so, our team takes their leave with Kurt happy that their Krakoan ranks have increased by one. Lady Mastermind. And we're out of here. We do wrap up with our roll call, in which we find out that the people we just read about were Nightcrawler, Magic, Cypher, Eyeboy, and Lockheed. Next episode is Wave 2, Book 3, Welcome to the Fold, Hellions. But first, let's talk about this giant-sized issue. Um, wow. Talk about pointless. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just... Yeah, uh, hmm... This was called Giant-Sized Nightcrawler, right? I really don't know why this wasn't just jammed into a one-off issue of X-Men, because, I mean, it's not like Nightcrawler got any more spotlight than he would have in a normal, you know, team book setting. I was also under the assumption, and I mean, this is purely an assumption, uh, that all of these giant sizes were going to have to do with Storm's, you know, vault disease or whatever. Though, I guess maybe Lady Mastermind is vital and she'll play into that clearing itself up and this was just an element of that overarching story? Maybe? I don't know. Now, as pointless as I thought this was, it wasn't bad. Um, I actually quite enjoyed a lot of the character beats here. It it just didn't feel like it needed to be told. Um, and I get that these giant-sized issues are intended to like shine a light on the artist, uh, you know, put them into the forefront... And I suppose in that regard, this was, you know, very nice Alan Davis artwork. If you're a fan of Alan Davis, you're going to enjoy the way this book looks. I am a fan of Alan J Davis, so yeah, I thought the book looked nice. But, uh, I can't help myself. You know where I'm going here. This is a $5 book. I mean, that's a lot of coin to drop on a book. That really didn't need the amount of pages it got, and really, at the end of the day, just didn't do much. 
I mean, our net positive here is like, hey, we found Lady Mastermind. But we already saw her entering Krakoa during the big Krakoa is for every mutant scene, right? I mean, and I, I know I, I know I rail on this, but it's like, we do have a small army of editors listed on these books. Maybe they all forgot? I, I mean, even I had to have my memory jogged by the Marvel Wiki, though, in fairness, nobody's paying me for my research and adherence to continuity. Speaking of which, Lockheed. Yeah, this probably isn't important to anybody, but I really feel like maybe they could have held off on this one until Lockheed officially came back in Marauders. I mean, it's not as though anything vital happens here, right? This giant's eyes could have come out a couple weeks later. Lockheed didn't even need to be a part of it. And I know, I again, another thing I rail on about is continuity and cohesion, you know, the things... You know, the sort of stuff that we're supposed to be way too cool for nowadays. But it's a nicety that I'd like to see continue in these books, and there's really zero reasons why it can't. What else? What else? Uh, Magic sees Warlock. I guess that's pretty cool. Um, That bit makes me think that Hickman's definitely got something in mind for the Douglock tandem, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Other than that, though, I really don't know that there's much to say. I mean, this this is an expensive book, which, in my opinion, under-delivers. It's pretty to look at, but essentially skippable. I mean, we could find out that this is going to be, you know, play huge and loom large as we move forward, but I ain't seeing it. Also, and this is a little bit, I guess, uh, more of the sticker shock here, it's kind of a bait-and-switch to refer to this as giant-sized Nightcrawler. Because if you did drop $5 to read a Nightcrawler-centric story, you ain't getting that. You're getting Nightcrawler, but he is not the focus here. He is not the, He's not even the main character here. We could argue that Doug or Magic are the main characters here. Or hell, even Lady Mastermind, because the whole thing ends with her reveal. I don't know what to tell you if you came to this book looking for... A Nightcrawler-centric story, especially in light of all the interesting things they're doing with Nightcrawler in the other books, or in, in X-Men, I guess. He's our, you know, he's our point-of-view character for so much of the weirdness going on in Krakoa that when I found out we were reading this, I was like, okay, maybe we're going to get a little bit more of his insight, and we don't. All we do, all we do get is him not even leading a team to check out what's happening at a Krakoan gate. I think we can say that Magic is the leader of this group. Which, why not just call it Giant Size Magic? You'd probably sell just as many copies. I don't know why it's called Nightcrawler. Uh, Maybe Alan Davis drew the cover first, and they're like, hey, that looks great. We'll just call it a Nightcrawler book. But didn't get a whole lot out of this one. Um, I I thought the story was fine. It looked great. But uh, in the... You know, in the overarching Dawn of X story, it's yeah, it was just here. But uh, that's probably more than enough <laughs> complaining about this book. I hope I didn't come across as far too negative here, but uh, I can't hide the fact that I was disappointed, and I'm not going to lie about it either. But uh, with that out of the way, let's hop into a fairly sizable mailbag segment today. Uh, we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Marauders number 9. He says, another great issue of Marauders. I feel like I'm getting a bit repetitive when we talk about this book. Uh, The fake-out with the deaths was very clever and got me good. 
Now, if you didn't listen to that episode or read Marauders Number Nine, there was a uh, there was a pretty brutal death scene featuring Pyro and Emma Frost, which turned out to be an illusion. But uh, the talking point coming out of that issue was the fact that in the new Resurrection Protocol era X Men here, we could easily buy both of those characters dying because they'd be back next issue anyway. So it was a fake out, and it worked very well. And uh, that death scene got me 100% too. I never thought for even a moment that this wasn't actually playing out the way it looked on the page. Um, And I figure, you know, this was all a ruse by Emma and the Cuckoos here, and it was almost as though the readers were being influenced as well, which is is cool on a meta level, I suppose. Uh, Damien continues, It's weird that we are so ready to accept scenes as real that previously we would have dismissed as dreams or fake-outs. The parameters of storytelling have changed. I can't wait for you to get to the next issue. This storyline continues to grow. In fact, I slightly resented it being paused for X of Tens. And yeah, the uh, shift that the Resurrection Protocols have provided cannot be understated. I I think I might have railed on a bit too much about how that was like a a little P problem when we discussed Marauders Number 9, but it's really wild how things have changed. I still... You know, if, you know, gun to my head, I couldn't tell you if it's a good thing or a bad thing, or, you know, just a thing. Uh, I'd actually be curious to learn what everyone else thinks about that as well. And Marauders, it's still that book. You know, it's the one I'm most looking forward to during the, uh, during the X-lapsed working week, right? Which is a testament to its quality and the pattern that it's established in being the most consistently, you know, must-read of the line. And I mean... I hope it hasn't been too obvious, I mean, today included, but there are issues that we devote entire episodes to on this program that really don't deserve it. Um, In a lot of them, it feels almost as though the creators are sleepwalking through a story, and I'm here left trying to think of things to say about it. Uh, The most recent issues of about half the line have definitely had a bit of that in them, including today's uh, Giant Size book. Marauders, though... It's a goodie. It's a great book. And uh, as Damien put it, it leads to our discussions being a bit repetitive with all the gushing, but, I mean, it's a positive, right? That's a good thing. I, I, don't, mind, I don't mind going overboard and being repetitive when I'm saying good things. It's when I'm saying bad things or indifferent things, if I'm repeating myself at that ca- in that sort of a situation, uh, I mean, it, it bores me to say it, so it must be boring folks to actually hear it. So... Uh, I do apologize for any negativity or dismissiveness, I suppose. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Marauders number 9, Damien. It's always a pleasure. Uh, Next up, Jeremiah is giving us his Dawn of X number 1's roundup. He says, Chris, I finished Dawn of X volume 1, which is the anthology book, and listened to all the podcasts except for Fallen Angels number 1. I'll get to that this weekend, most likely. I'm off on Friday and hope to do some reading and catching up on the fun stuff. I'd like to share what I thought of the first issues for this launch. One, it was exactly what I expected. Good stories and good art, mostly, across too many books. For once, I put my mind to not getting wrapped up in a bunch of comics that I'll like and just add to a growing pile. At some point, you just cannot buy every good comic, so I didn't. All that being said, listening to your podcast and then finding out about the Dawn of X trades has been great. It's a nice compromise to buying all the issues. And, uh... It really can't be overstated. Um, The Dawn of X anthology trades are absolutely brilliant. 
And this is coming from someone who hates using the word brilliant because its overuse on the internet has rendered it to be mostly meaningless. Uh, but really, this is such a smart way to keep readers up to speed on everything without having to track down individual issues. It helps to give this entire era like an evergreen feeling, whether some of it deserves it, some of it doesn't. It's nice that it's there. Uh, I really, I feel it's a, it's definitely a, a positive thing. Uh, especially with how fast and furious these books are coming out, with the prices on these books, and some current year situations that might preclude people from getting to the comic shop as often as they'd like. So, really, really cool stuff. Two thumbs up on the anthologies. Uh, Jeremiah continues, uh, Two, I like the stories and art in the issues, with the exception of Fallen Angels. I was lost for the most part, and the art was too dark for my tastes. In fact, the art is one of the high points for these books in my mind. That went for Powers of X and or Power of X and House of X too. In most cases, everything is nice and tight, clean and easy on the eyes. And uh, yeah, Fallen Angels, all snark aside, is a tough book to follow. Um, I think the way I made it through was to, I mean, this is gonna sound silly, but <laughs> what made it easy to get through Fallen Angels was the moment that I realized that I should simply accept everything we're seeing as being exactly what it looked like, right? Early on, I was so busy trying to parse the purple prose and the dark and murky art, looking for symbolism, expecting something way more deep than we were actually getting. But, I mean, it really wasn't nearly as deep as I think we were supposed to think it was, right? The symbolism, if we can even call it that, was like, hey, look, a butterfly. (laughs) Everything else was basically exactly what we saw on the page. Um, It took me a while to realize that, but uh, once I did, I was pretty much able to jettison everything that was maybe a bit too pleased with itself and didn't add to the story, and just get down to the very, very, very bare-bones story that we actually got. I think it really... Like, it, it, it wore a facade, right? It wanted to be something else. It wanted to be artsy. It wanted to be deep. But it wasn't. It was a very basic story. When you when you sweep all the garbage and BS out of there, it's a very basic story. It's not a great story, but uh, without all the purpleness and the poetry, it was a little bit better than <laughs> otherwise. Still not great. Uh, also, I agree, the art overall for the line has been pretty solid here. Um, I think the only artist that I had any sort of complaints about, and I don't even think we can even call them complaints, was uh, Lionel Yu on X-Men. And with him, it was more of just his style being a poor fit for the type of storytelling Hickman was going for, other than being just bad. I didn't think it was bad at all. Um, Jeremiah continues. Now, this is how I would rank the number one issues from favorite to least favorite. I'm looking forward to seeing if you rank them in the Fallen Angels episode. And yes, by the time you get to the Fallen Angels episode, you will hear my rankings. Uh, Number one is a tie between Marauders and X-Force number one. He says, just a good mix of story development and action in each book. Pox and Hawks were light on the action and heavy on the story, so I appreciated there being some battles in these issues. And, you know, going from memory... I think I listed Marauders as my top book of the Docs number ones too. Very, very strong outing. Uh, I don't remember where I listed X-Force, but it too started off very strong. Uh, Maybe not to everybody's style, but it definitely made a statement. And uh, as you're listening to this, if you you know, in episode 70, when you get here, 
you'll know that X-Force has fluctuated, perhaps the most wildly, of any of the books. There are some really, really good issues, and also some really, really rotten ones as well. I don't think we've had such a uh, was it, polemic uh, book in the line just yet. Outside of X-Force, everything else has been middling, or really good, or really bad. X-Force jumps back and forth. His number two book is X-Men number one. He says, I felt this has a, was a very strong lead-in to the, to the new books and follow-up for the two miniseries that preceded it. I really like the stuff with the Summers family, too. And yeah, the Summer House stuff was pretty great. And it offered up so many questions about the current status quo. And I'm wondering if there's any backstory to mine here, right? Um, I remember asking early on during the X-Lab series, I had asked... If there was an issue of the previous Uncanny volume that might have alluded to the big cha- changes in the, you know, the Hoxpox landscape, and I was told no. I was told that that volume just ended, and then Hoxpox, narratively speaking, just came out of nowhere and hit the ground running. So I think I'd like to see some, I guess, year one or year zero story to show us the establishment of the settlement. I mean, for all I know, that's already happened like in the interim between... Uh, Giant Size Nightcrawler and X of Tens, but if so, I'd like to see it because, I mean, was did we know Krakoa was going to be you know a big deal? Did we know anything about Resurrection? Did we know anything about anything really? Did we know anything about unifying mutants as you know one people, or did it just happen? You know, those are the things I'd like the answers to. But uh, you know what they say about you know watching the sausage get made, right? Now, Jeremiah's third book is New Mutants Number 1. I enjoyed the heck out of this book and thought the art was fantastic, maybe the best of the bunch. Not a huge fan of the new young mutants leaving Earth so quickly after everything having just been established, but you can't have everything. That's my only real knock against the story. And yeah, I'm on record probably way too many times as saying that I don't dig the space stories. Um, the thing with this one is that the space story is... It's kind of a backdrop, you know? Uh, Hickman pulls focus from the scenery and makes it a very strong character piece here. And I guess with Hickman, we're just going to always have to accept that there's going to be an element of space, right? <laughs> it's We're going to be dealing with it. No matter what book he's working on, there's going to be some cosmic crap that is going to baffle my brain and I'm just not going to care about it. Thankfully, everything else in this New Mutant story was strong enough to keep me entertained and, you know, Engaged with the with the characters. His fourth book, Excalibur number one. He says, "Good art, an okay story." I was a little lost. See my Fallen Angels comments next. I like the stuff with the Arthurian legend being part of the story. I just felt like not enough of what was happening was explained. Like, why did Apocalypse need Rogue to touch the gate, and what actually happened to her after she did? And that's a good point, to be honest. I haven't even thought about Rogue touching the portal since it actually happened. I just knew she was in a coma. Um, I couldn't tell you why that was important or necessary. Though, you know, being transparent here, I might have just I might just be forgetting something that was made clear. <laughs> you know, I don't remember. Uh, I just don't remember it being so vital to the story that they made a point of uh, putting it in the forefront. The fifth book of the the worst book of the line from Jeremiah is, of course, Fallen Angels number one. Easily my least favorite story because I had no idea of what was going on until the end when they say, hey, let's make a team. I have zero knowledge of the whole Betsy Braddock and Psylocke being different people idea. 
I feel like that would have been a help for this one. The art was only so-so. It was awfully dark, and I'm sorry, but the characters all looked alike to me. It was hard to distinguish who was who, even if I knew who everyone was. And, uh, yeah, hey, let's make a team is about the size of it, right? You just wait until they add a couple more members who literally stand around and do nothing for a couple of issues while Quanan acts all broody. Now, Betsy and Quanan... I've read the stories where this is explained, like, several times. Um, This was right after the Executioner song, probably early to mid-1993. And this is a time where I used to read my X-Men comics, like, a dozen times each. Half dozen times each, you know? Just, I used to read them over and over and over again. Um, And I still haven't the foggiest idea what it all means. I'm also unclear as to when Betsy was returned to her original body... But I think I heard that that's tied in with the death of Wolverine glut from a few years back. Does, does anybody else remember that? How they launched like a half dozen titles, including a weekly title, all devoted to Wolverine being dead? Ugh. Uh, you won't get any of these answers during Fallen Angels. Um, unfortunately, it's just... It's not explained. It's going to be mentioned a whole lot. Uh, Quanan will not go a page without saying, I remember Betsy was in my body. But we're not going to find out anything else. Um, maybe we can do like an X-lapsed, explained subseries where we uh, where we can focus on this story sometime down the line. Who knows? We'll we'll put that in the uh, in the nebulous idea pile for now. Uh, Jeremiah continues. I'm loving the show and especially the feedback you're reading. It's really enjoyable to hear your take and others all talking about the same thing. It's fun to be part of that conversation. I also can't wait to see what happens with Professor X being shot. And honestly, the feedback is usually the funnest part of this program for me. Um, I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again. Uh, Podcasting and creating comics commentary uh, can be a lonely little mission. So it's great to know that we're not alone. Uh, We're all in this ride together and sharing our thoughts, our hopes, our expectations. It's it's really, really cool. It's equal parts humbling and, and awesome. Um, when I see, it, I mean, it's crazy. When I see people, when I see feedback regarding other people's feedback, it gives me like this weird, warm feeling, right? It's like, as cringy as that might sound, it feels like we're all like truly part of a club. And that really is, is very heartwarming to me. Um, as for Professor X being shot, I remember being very excited to find out how that was going to shake out as well. <laughs> uh, Jeremiah closes with next up, next update, episode eighteen and Dawn of X, volume two. So thank you so much for uh, for keeping up and uh, continuing along on this ride and for sharing your thoughts, Jeremiah. It's very much appreciated. Next, Andrew Franklin shares his thoughts on that Scott and Logan scene from uh, X Men number seven. He says, I think Damien is spot on in his assessment of that Scott and Wolverine scene and any potential attraction there. I also agree with you that having them be close friends doesn't seem right. I see them as friendly co-workers rather than drinking buddies. Alex is the Summer's brother that Logan would want to hang out with. And yeah, I mean, what was that, what was that saying I probably butchered last time we talked about this? Like a tempest in a, in a teacup or a teapot or a tea bag or something? <laughs> whatever, whatever one means making something small into something very, very big. I feel like the comics journos saw smoke and assumed there was fire. 
and they weren't allowed they weren't about to let something that could be considered as controversial slip by without getting their clicks out of it and i agree 100% uh, i like scott and logan as sort of uneasy allies like i'd want to see them hang out only because they have to you know make their social time be the exception rather than the rule and i also agree that logan and alex would likely get along quite well. Uh, I mean, they might even use each other as a sounding board to complain about, you know, how uptight Scott is. You know, I think that's a... Uh, I think he... Th- that Those two could have a, a better friendship than than Scott and Logan. I just don't... I just don't see it. <laughs> but uh, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts on that, on that spicy scene. Uh, next, another Andrew. This is Andrew in Belfast talking about the Excalibur number 8 episode and some of the stuff that I had... Uh, I had weaved in there some anecdotes that I had told here. And Andrew says, Chris, I was listening to your story about the PhD students teaching the class in representation in comics. I actually started to apply to do a PhD on that exact subject last year and then didn't follow through with it. Now, having heard your George Perez story, I think that was a great thing. Mind you, I was thinking more up-to-date examples than Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill. Same as you, actually. Same as you, actually, I didn't want to start mixing academic subjects with my hobbies. And yeah, totally. It's uh, it's always dicey when you go to turn your passions or hobbies into something you you know do either professionally, uh, professionally with quotes around it, or academically. I feel like you run the risk of changing something you love and choose to do into something you then have to do. Um, there's also like the familiarity of of a passion or a hobby. It may lead to like prefrontal shorthand or free recall shorthand might be a better descriptor um, because being on the you know, quote unquote inside as an actual comics enthusiast, my mind can be flooded with instances and situations from comics history when asked even the simplest of questions. Um, I overthink things as a as a rule as it is anyway. I overthink everything. It's kind of that whole. That, what is that saying, you know, when you ask me what time it is, I'll tell you how to build a watch or build a clock or something. Uh, for example, very early in that class, we had to compare and contrast two characters, and those were Superman and Adam Man, two heroes of a similar vintage. Uh, Adam Man debuted in 1943 and was clearly inspired by Superman, but also we were supposed to discuss why one endured and one did not. You know, Superman, of course, endured. Adam Man, you might be hearing for the first time right now. And Adam Man is rooted in very basic knowledge of atomic energy, which was hot-button stuff at the time, but would never endure the way Superman would. Well, rather than just saying that, my mind started to sputter to life with everything that happened in Superman's world from his debut until the present, you know, as of 2011 or 2012 or whenever I took this class. I kept going back to how Superman could be revisited or reintroduced at any point in history where Adam Man was definitely a creation of his time, right? Atomic energy was big. We had, you know, the, the whole thing at the end of World War II. It was very, very timely. But rather than writing a simple paragraph stating just that, I wrote several pages. Um, maybe it was to show off my knowledge. Maybe I will always just make things harder than they need to be. Or maybe I just want people to know that I know comics. I don't know. But this was like our first assignment. 
And rather than spending 10 minutes considering, you know, a thoughtful paragraph-long response to this question, I spent an entire weekend torturing and indulging myself. It's like I couldn't help it. So I couldn't imagine writing a doctoral thesis on comics. I'd be long dead before I was done. I don't know if they'd posthumously grant me an honorary degree. I guess we could hope so, but there's no way I'd be able to finish. Ever. Ever. (laughs) I've got scripts... Uh, I've got Cosmic Treadmill scripts and Weird Comics History scripts that I started in 2016 that I'm not done with now. And these shows will never make air. You know, it's... I... I can go on. (laughs) And uh, maybe it's just my personality type, but even just doing comics commentary professionally with quotes around it, because this isn't professional, I sometimes feel like I make more of a thing of it than it really needs to be. Um... And sadly, this is actually something that kind of spoiled a hobby for me, in that I don't have time to consume any other sorts of comics commentary, be it podcasts or blogs or whatever. Uh, it's sadly, like, it's all about me and what I do at this point, and that's, that's sad. Um, I mean, I used to plan long solo drives just so I could listen to the podcast that I'd saved up on the way, right? I don't do that anymore. And that stinks. And, I mean, there are plenty of shows I want to listen to and catch up on, and I should. But it's as though I just don't have, you know, enough brain space for any of it. It really, yeah, it's... When you make a hobby into something that you do, you know, if you're... If you got a personality type like me, you make sacrifices. And it's it's unfortunate. And they're not voluntary. It's just something that happens. Andrew, uh, Andrew continues... Also, I feel I should point out that I never read any of the X-Book info pages, and I can attest to the fact that it hasn't affected my reading pleasure one iota. (laughs) My man, there are so many of these that I wish I didn't spend the time on. Um, (laughs) I'll, I'll read some of these info pages, you know. I'll read it one time, then I'll stop and think, like, how in the world do I share this? You know, like, how do I sum this up? Because... A lot of them are distilled, right? Uh, but a lot of them are just plain ridiculous. Um, it's just not possible. It's either I sit here on the air reading the entire thing out loud, or I just say something like, yeah, it's another info page and the stars are talking to one another. Or, yeah, it's poetry about butterflies and, and moving on. So <laughs> it's, it could be weird. It could be weird. But thank you so much for your message there, uh, Andrew. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, next, our friend Evan Bevins is talking about X-Force number two. But first, he, uh, he fills us in on some other Marvel information. He says, FYI, the X-Squared Chimeras made a brief cameo in Amazing Spider-Man number 35, that is the most recent volume, when Peter was using a device that gauged probability by scanning the multiverse. So did A-Next and Days of Future Past and some other alternate futures. I tell you what, I love it when they do that. And despite the fact that it's unlikely I'm ever going to buy anything with Nick Spencer's name on it, I'm very happy to hear that the uh, Chimera's got a little cameo time here. That's that's really cool. It makes it seem uh, more real, you know? Uh, Evan continues. Listening to the X-Force number 2 episode, and I was about to send you a snarky but still good-natured reprimand for the comic about the, quote, lazy and delayed Whedon run. But it was canceled out moments later by you saying two pages of credits will never get back. That made me literally laugh out loud. I kid, of course. One thing I like about your takes is that you respect other people's opinions while having your own. 
I love the Whedon run, but remember thinking the first issue was exactly what I expected from the creator of Buffy writing the X-Men, which I have to admit I can understand some people not liking. And I'm glad I'm not the only one remembering Strong Guy being the king of hell at at the end of X-Factor. Anybody but Peter David writes that, and I would have been ticked. And yeah, I I appreciate the comment, for sure. I always try to keep myself in check uh, when talking about things I really don't care for. Because I've said this before, I always assume my opinion's wrong. Um, Maybe it's just some of that Catholic guilt I was raised with. (laughs) I don't know. I try to keep things even-handed. And uh, I'm always careful not to say something, not to outright say something was bad. You know, I'll just consider that whatever that something was, simply wasn't for me. And I know that the Whedon run is considered by many to be a modern classic. It wasn't for me, but that doesn't make it any less important in the grand scheme of things. Um, You all know me when it comes to things like lore. I take the stuff I love, the stuff I like, the stuff I tolerate, and the stuff I dislike. To me, everything matters. Everything is part of the, the tapestry, right? Everything is part of the story. Though in fairness to the Whedon run, I haven't read it since it came out. You know, I read it back in, what was it, 04, 05? Which, I mean, that means that I read it with these great huge gaps between each issue. Since, I mean, one thing we cannot argue is that it was very much delayed. You know, uh, the quality we can argue, uh, whether or not we liked it, we can, we can debate. But it was very very delayed. I remember. I think there was a year where only two or three issues came out. So um, that's when I read it, and I didn't go back to revisit the the issues before to see how they worked together. Is I, I wasn't doing anything with an analytical eye back then. I was just you know these were my stories. You know these were my soap operas. And uh, in fairness to the Whedon Run, maybe it deserves another look. You know, uh, everybody else can't be wrong, right? <laughs> so. Uh, Maybe uh, maybe we'll throw up uh, an astonishing X-lapsed shub, sub-show somewhere down the line. We'll, we'll see how that goes, if anybody's interested in hearing even more of my voice, talking and perhaps talking poorly about such a well-regarded run. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But uh, thank you for the information and the comment there, Evan. It's very much appreciated. And we're going to wrap up with a missive from Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade, and he, uh, he wrote a letter called X-Lapsed Catch-Up. He says, I spent yesterday and today catching up on the last week of episodes. Yes, even Major X. Yes, Major X got some listens. <laughs> As I mentioned before, I have not read any of these issues, and I'm experiencing it through your voice and thoughts. Thank you so much for doing it, and keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much for uh, for hanging out with us here and, and keeping up. It really, really means a lot. And uh, Longbox Crusade is, uh, is a program that uh, I'm going to be making an appearance on, hopefully, sooner than later. We've been talking a little bit about that. And it's, a, it's an absolute treat to, uh, to be invited. Um, the thing about me is I, I am not good at... Uh, I, I'm not good socially. <laughs> I'm not good at talking to people. Which is probably why it's so rare that I'm invited out to play. So it always means a lot when uh, when someone reaches out and asks me to uh, to come play. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Whatever the topic may be, I'm I'm there. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Pat continues. I know I've chatted you on Messenger about listening. Feel free to mention that if you want. Nothing to hide about how much you inspire me and how much I enjoyed listening to you and Reggie. Again, thank you. That. Uh, 
I talked earlier about how this can be a lonely thing, and, and I'm sure, Pat, I'm sure you know. Uh, you put out a lot of work, too. It's This can be a very lonely gig. And uh, so it's it's just, it's beyond awesome to hear uh, to hear stuff like this. It's Sometimes it's just what the doctor ordered, you know. Um, Pat continues, So in my binging of the episodes, I have a question for you and the listeners. And his question is, Who do you consider a major bad guy in this Hoxpox era? With the good guys and bad guys hanging out, who really is a bad guy to watch out for? So I'll leave that for everyone here, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll consider it over the next several episodes here. See what's... What do we think? What do we think? I think we have our Theory A, which is to say the island did it. But uh, we'll, we'll see as we keep going here, especially as we get ever closer to, uh, to X of Tens, right? Uh, Pat wraps up with, thanks again for all you're doing. I will keep on listening, and thank you so, so much. That really, really means a lot. This was a huge mailbag uh, segment here, and uh, I loved every second of it. Um, I've never had a creative endeavor or a commentary endeavor that's that's elicited this kind of a response. And uh, it it really does me very, very proud and very, very happy that we have this, you know, this little community that's uh, we're all on the same ride here. We're at different we're at different stops on the ride, but we're all on the same ride. And we're all having a good time, and we're all. Uh, we're all really thinking about these books, you know. We're thinking about our expectations, what we like, what we don't like. It's just, it takes me back to being an introverted kid who would hang out on the fringes of the comic shop listening to the big kids talk, <laughs> you know, because I was too petrified to join in these conversations. Now here we are, and uh, and we're all part of these conversations, and it really, you know, makes my heart grow three sizes, you know. it's It's really, really cool. It means a lot to me. Probably too much. But uh, if anyone out there listening is still listening, thank you. And if you'd like to reach out and be part of the conversation, please, please feel free to do so. You can reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts at, uh, where is that? Chris is on com, and also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, you can chat us up on Facebook at 90s X-Men, and of course, the whole Chris and Reggie archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And I think that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Just one more giant thank you to everyone for sharing their time and their thoughts and everything else with me. And uh, until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh